disagree with me, argue with me, don't have the same opinion as me. This point comes from a tweet from Adam Grant. So Adam Grant tweeted uh, during the week about people agreeing, and he said, if people agree, someone isn't thinking critically. And I think the the main point he was trying to make is that everyone is going to have a different opinion in some way, even if they agree on the moral or the values of whatever the point is being made, they're still going to disagree in a certain context, at a certain point in time, in a different situation. So if you're, if you're completely agreeing with someone, normally they're either not thinking critically about a certain aspect, certain area, or they've just taken something at face value. They may have even just adopted what it is that you've said as fact, as truth, because of perceived status or perceived reference, or they just don't care to argue, which are all fair points. But when it comes to academics, when it comes to learning and pushing the boundaries of what our knowledge is and human performance, we need to be able to think critically about everything that everyone says. Now, for me, the takeaway point here is not to just argue and disagree with everyone about everything, but to accept that everyone is going to have a slightly different opinion, a slightly different way of looking at things, and it's not a bad thing. If someone disagrees with you, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. It means you can have a conversation and move forwards with the different friction points, the different differences, the the discourse that you two have in that conversation. Now, you can you can even have the, the a different opinion, but still come to the same sort of conclusion. So, when you're looking at different research you may have different research to back up your point and your point may be slightly different and your view may be different to someone else but the overall protocol the overall end product the behaviors the actions that are actually being taken could be the same now if they're not the same again it doesn't matter because there's just different ways of doing things and that's why it's better for humans to work in groups because you get to the group average Individuals working on something, if you have five individuals, they're better off working as a team because then you get the group average. So you get the the highs and lows of every different opinion and you can actually work out together what's going on. And that's what uh, Vsauce did a video on reasoning a while ago and was talking about reasoning and, and working together as a group of humans, a group of people to find a reason, a justification that makes sense to the majority of people. Now, when it comes to group work and politicians and politics, etc., that is slightly biased because there are certain opinions, certain groups of people that have a a bigger, a larger say, whether that is because of impact or just because of the amount of people there are there, which is where equality and equity, the argument goes backwards and forwards. But at the end of the day, we need a balanced group of opinions as best we can with differing opinions to allow for some middle ground to be found, the mean average to be found, thinking about the bell curve, you're never going to be all the way one side, all the way the other side, there's always going to be different opinions. So having different opinions isn't bad, it's just not so useful when you have a different opinion and you don't air it, which is why if you do have a different opinion to anything that I've said on any of these podcasts, in any of the notes, do let me know, say, you're wrong and this is why, or I found this research that suggests otherwise. Uh, because all of the points that I make, uh, again, I will say this for anyone listening new to the podcast, the links to all of the sources will be in the description, uh, which can be found on the website, but all of these points are either referenced through academics or they've been spoken about that I have explored in other academic papers, but that's my own research time. Now, when it comes to moving forwards and, and helping to not necessarily educate other people, but sharing what you know, sharing what you know, you're going to have different opinions, like I said, uh, but what 
uh, Veritasium. So that's Derek Muller, for those unaware. Veritasium's YouTube channel. He was talking about Khan Academy and the effectiveness of science videos. Now, he was talking science videos typically in physics, but he also referenced maths and biology and chemistry and biochemistry and loads of other areas of science. But the idea that videos shouldn't be too easy or obvious, and they need to they need to challenge the the viewer. They need to challenge assumptions or misconceptions, essentially. And this idea, I think, needs to be applied more when it comes to not just videos, but lectures, conversations, talks, etc. Try to find that that differing opinion. Like the, the first point I was saying, like Adam Grant was saying, you need a different opinion. And when it comes to sharing thoughts, if you say something and someone just goes, yep, I agree with that, they typically are, well, they are more likely to just accept what it is that you're saying and just nod along rather than really thinking about what it is that's being said. Now, does that mean you need to find something that's just outlandish every time you want to say something or share something? No. But when it does, when when you look at the nuance of most things, there are going to be things that you just wouldn't expect to see, or there is going to be results that are unexpected, or things that contradict something. Maybe just finding a, a critical, critical way of looking at something just to get people's interest in there, uh, and then get them thinking critically about their original thought, their original thinking, and that's where misconceptions and challenging assumptions comes in. Now, and something I want to add to that, and something I want to add to that is when sharing things, sharing things for the general public, the the normal people per se, uh, that don't understand the jargon and the lingo in that research area, that research topic, if you're giving giving loads of advice or giving protocols that could be used and sharing the justifications behind them, if they don't understand where it's come from, then they're less likely to make the change because it's lack of information, looking at behavior change. They need to understand really what's going on so they can actually make actions towards it rather than, but you can't just give them a load of actions and not explain behind it. But when you explain things, you don't want, you don't want to be too in-depth because you don't want to be a hundred steps ahead of them. So this is what Veritasium has done very well when breaking down his videos. He gives you a misconception, he explains either something that you wouldn't expect, something you didn't know, a misconception, or things that other people have commonly got wrong. Uh, wrong isn't a bad thing, it's just their prior knowledge didn't give them the knowledge that they, they have now, uh, or just a different perspective. And once he's done that, once he's grabbed the attention, grabbed the, the intrigue of the viewer, he then goes in and, and goes in deep a lot of the time with all the physics and everything that goes behind it, but he explains it all and then brings back the narrative. He brings back what he is, what it is that he's talking about. Whether he brings it back to a protocol, brings it back to a behavior, brings it back to general life implications or how that can actually impact daily living. So he he brings in this misconception, this and, and challenges an assumption, then goes into the detail and then brings it back to a narrative that people can understand. And that is the difference. That that is I think the story line that should be taken in lectures, in education, in videos, in articles, in blogs, etc. Because when I'm like talking from my experience at university, it was very easy uh, for lecturers because they just either had a presentation or they had a talk and they said 
okay, we're going to talk about A, B, C, and D. Now, you may have no idea what A, B, C, and D mean in the real world. You don't know how it impacts the real world. You don't know uh, any misconceptions. You don't know what to challenge because you've never heard of this thing. Then they go deep into research, again, losing you even further a lot of the time, or you are very familiar with it and you just go along with it because that's what you've read. And then at the end of the lecture, they then give you something else to look at. But they haven't challenged you. They haven't made you think about it. They haven't challenged you. They haven't made you think about anything, really. Uh, and all they've really done, most of the time from my experience, is do you agree with this, yes or no? And most of the time, because they're lectures and they have loads of research and you haven't done the research, you just go, yeah, okay, that's cool. You write it down and then you try and repeat it verbatim. But that doesn't mean you've learned something. It just means you know how to repeat what someone else has said. So changing the way and the format and the story and the narrative of the lecture can change how our brain activates and how we can then use those memories to help us learn rather than just discarding those memories. So I, I would imagine many of you listening have either been at university or at least been to school and you can look back and there will be some lessons you remember. Maybe there was a, a narrative, a story that happened. Someone fell over, someone forgot something, someone was made silly, there was an argument in a lesson or something actually happened, like something out the window, snowing or some random thing happened. The, the, some sort of event happened to trigger your memory and that narrative is then stuck in your memory. But if those things don't happen in lectures or in lessons then whatever happened in that lesson is just forgotten unless you've noted it down and then you have to go and create another narrative for that lesson for that topic for that idea and creating your own narratives around everything that you learn takes time takes effort and takes a system that you understand but most people in education don't understand that so the teacher what i think they should be doing is making it fun making it exciting making it intriguing engaging but creating a narrative creating a story during that presentation that gets people thinking that gets people remembering and and looking through do i agree don't i agree what about this and they ask this they ask themselves their own questions and when it comes to neuroscience and the neuroscience of consciousness i'm moving on to another highlighted point now there is uh, this idea of predicted processing slash coding uh, and this was a talk from anil seth now there was loads of points in this talk but i only take one point uh, there were loads of points in this talk that i really wanted to dive deep on and i blogged about uh, four vision which was actually inspired by this talk from Anil and predictive processing I'm, I'm gonna set the scene here so when you're looking look out the window or uh, if you're driving a car obviously don't look away from the road but whenever you're looking at something you can visualize in your head because of the way the brain works you can visualize something that you're not actually seeing so if there's a building in front of you or if there's a car in front of you or if there's a wall in front of you you can visualize what is behind that wall what is on the other side of the cup what is at the front of the car you can visualize that in your head so you can predict what is going to happen in the future so if you move something if you got if you pick something up in your hand you have a cup in your hand and you're looking at it you have the the front of the cup and you can predict what's going to happen if you turn the cup one way you can't see it yet but you can predict it so you're using your prior memory with what you're currently seeing in the present to predict future actions what fu what what's going to happen in future and that's how sort of memory works and you can you can use our we can use our brain and not not many animals can um from my understanding but we can use our brain to predict what's going to happen in the future and this idea of predictive processing from the neuroscience of consciousness allows us to then think ahead and thinking ahead of time and when it comes to learning and thinking ahead of time that is where the critical aspects the narratives come in because when you do challenge 
whatever it is, whether it's a misconception or an assumption, the person has heard that, listened to that, is using their past experience, their previous memory, so they're actively recalling previous things, using their understanding in the present state, and they are trying to predict, okay, if that is true, and if what you're saying is true, that I don't believe, what about this? What if that? And you have to try and predict what different scenarios could happen. So using using a practical example here, strength and conditioning, because that's my field of research and I'm very familiar with it. If you move a weight, you're going to increase the stress on the muscles and therefore you're going to develop. But if someone doesn't fundamentally believe that when you build muscle, it doesn't necessarily grow in size, some a, a misconception in the in strength and conditioning world in female athletes specifically, I'm not being genderist, it's just a female assumption that is out there is if you have hypertrophy, you're going to get massive muscles. It doesn't work like that. You're not going to get absolutely massive after a couple of months of training with hypertrophy because your muscles don't get that big that quick. But that's that's a question that they need to understand or not the question they need to understand it's the question that they need to explore themselves with their own research so you could say a misconception being just because you're getting hypertrophy from strength training doesn't mean you're going to increase in size and for people that don't know that don't understand that there's a misconception now they have to challenge themselves okay if it doesn't mean i'm increasing in size then what is hypertrophy because i thought hypertrophy was growing in muscle but you're saying that you're not increasing in size and that would be something that they would then need to explore themselves and they would need to predict okay what questions do i need to ask where can i go explore this and obviously the lecture that can then carry on and explain how different things happen in the body and how hypertrophy works with muscular tension etc etc not going to talk about that now but that was the example uh, and and when i'm thinking about this and you look at the neuroscience behind learning and predicting what is going on you then need to question okay what is the brain actually doing because the brain has more than just one function i mean at the end of the day the brain is a a lump of mush that has a load of nerves in it so w what does it actually do and this is where uh, i've recently gone through well part, partly gone through the crash course on youtube from hank green about the biochemistry of the nervous system now the brain uh, is for thinking, feeling, and remembering. Now, remembering is that learning aspect. That thinking is creating new new neuron pathways to essentially remember things and use memory and create different thoughts and linking ideas. But the feeling aspect of the brain is also really important because we're taking in information and that information could be sensory information. So that's all our senses. So eyes, touch, hearing, etc. We, we're taking in that information. We're then processing that information. The same as thinking. The same as learning. And then doing something with it. Uh, and, and most of the time when that's doing something with it, it's an action. Whether that is making a statement. Or whether that is moving our hands. Or moving what it is that we're doing. That's what the brain is doing. is perceiving information. It's grabbing information. It's processing the information. And then it's sending out messages for our body to do something with that information. And that is where learning becomes very challenging on the brain. Because we're always receiving this information and we're receiving it normally through our ears but also through our sight and that's this is where learning styles can potentially come in learning styles there's not like a one preferred learning style that is another miss myth it's a misconception about learning we don't have a preference in learning style we just use them all um i'm not going to go on that one but that's something else for you to explore we're better off using lots of different types of learning styles such as visual auditory etc than just the one but all of that information that we consume, that, that we that we get into ourselves, like, like we consume through video and audio and all of that sort of stuff, is then processed in our brain and then we create thoughts. But that requires energy. And if we're using energy to think, 
then we need the energy to start with. Which means when you do go to those 9 a.m. lectures and you've you've been out the last night and you, you had a bad night's sleep, you haven't eaten breakfast and you haven't refueled your body, that first lecture is going to be pants because you need energy to think. And if you don't have the energy to think, you're not going to think. You're not going to think critically. You're not going to have to. You're not. You're not going to have the energy, the capacity, the the ability to look at those misconceptions and actually challenge what it is that's going on. Which is why those 9 a.m. lectures can be a little bit um, groggy for some people and actually not very beneficial. So maybe maybe you could argue that 9 a.m. lectures are inefficient for actual learning for some people. So maybe they should do lectures later on in the day for those people that potentially don't wake up that early. Or you'd have to force them instead of them being free sleepers that have to be uh, constrained sleepers and have to use an alarm, wake up, but then they have to monitor their own time, their own, obviously, life, uh, and manage that. So the early lectures aren't necessarily helping some people they're actually hindering some people so those those individuals that haven't been able to critically analyze what it is that's going on during that lecture are less likely to remember it and if they don't remember it they're not going to learn and they're not going to move forwards so how can we as individuals that are interested in the topic that are either lecturing or sharing or looking at videos or we ourselves being that person what can we do about it well Obviously, the, the obvious answers there would be don't go out before uh, the night you have a 9 a.m. lecture, make sure you get enough sleep, have the energy, but also use other people and have a conversation. Either have a conversation during the lecture with people next to you, uh, assuming you're allowed to talk, or have a conversation after the lecture and then critically look at whatever it was that was brought up at a time that you can think about it. So if if you do go out and you do have a bit of fun and you're just not awake, you don't have the energy for the lecture, grab down different points that's been made and then create your narrative at a different point in time when you can uh, look at it. So grab down points, just sort of like vaguely listen because it's less energy, uh, vaguely listen at different points. Oh, okay, yeah, that's interesting. And just note it down. And then you can have a conversation about the points after the lecture when you have the energy to actually think and go through that. But again, the brain is the central nervous system. Thinking, feeling, remembering. But the feeling aspects, the thinking aspects, all require nerves. They all require energy, glucose, energy from the body. And that feeling, that that feeling, that the emotions are related to a narrative, are related to a story, and if you don't have the energy to engage in that story, engage in that narrative, you're not going to get the feelings of the the, the memory, which is less likely to then stick. Uh, and when it comes to the the brain and its ability to keep going, obviously in a lecture, it could be an hour lecture, two hour lecture, but if you've got a whole day of work, or you've got a whole day of lectures, or you've got a whole day of something, you need to be able to keep going. And that's where the endurance in your brain comes in. Now, endurance is down to four main things from what I can see, and that is uh, nervous endurance, muscular endurance, the, the heart and the lungs. All of those uh, different bodily functions play a role in endurance. Lungs obviously need, we, we need the oxygen uh, to go into the blood, to pump around, to give us the energy to do whatever it is that we're doing. Normally go to either the muscles or the brain. Uh, heart, again, we need the blood to be pumped around. I'm not going to go into depth into the heart and the lungs, cardiovascular and respiratory systems, but those systems are needed for endurance because if we don't have the blood, we don't have the oxygen in the blood, we can't get energy to think and move. Muscles, again, fairly obvious. The muscles need to be uh, able to 
be used throughout the day so you can walk to and from lectures or get to and from lectures through whatever medium uh, it is that you you move yourself maybe you're in a wheelchair or crutches or whatever um, and the same thing like your muscles need to be able to either take notes so you can write down the narratives and the questions the curiosities you have so that's energy in your arms energy in your hands it sounds obvious but a lot of people don't don't really engage that okay, these these muscles that I'm using to take notes, if I'm taking notes in lecture and I'm trying to think, that's more energy expenditure. And if there's more energy expenditure over a long period of time, you're less likely to take notes at the end of the day because you've been using your brain so much, you've been using your hands and, and your body to get to and from lectures, and as your energy level drops, it's obviously got only a certain amount to do so either you're thinking less and taking more verbatim notes which is less efficient or you're thinking the same amount but you're taking less written notes and again not as efficient because your brain's not going to remember everything it, it just can't unless there is a very good narrative and a very strong trigger point to help memory but that's less likely to happen at the end of the day because everyone is slightly low on energy so it's managing your energy throughout the day which requires consumption of some sort of energy source so that's obviously food drink nutrition etc and the nerve aspect of this is when when you're looking at nerves there's only uh, nerves are basically just action potentials going up into the brain and there's only a a certain amount uh, so when when action potentials are triggered and and you start learning things in the brain it needs to go past a certain uh, point. I think it's negative 35 millivolts. I think I may have got that number wrong. Uh, again, I will look for the look for the references uh, in the description of the podcast. I think it's th- uh, negative 35 millivolts. But as your energy levels drop and as your the, the sodium levels drop, so salt in the bloodstream, etc., action potentials can potentially uh, be harder to uh, push because you need a certain amount of millivolts for action potentials to happen and then different things to happen in the brain for triggering memories, etc., etc. So it all comes down to the amount of energy you have in the body to trigger the neurons to actually give you action potentials to move muscles so you can get to different places, heart so you have the blood going around the body and then the lungs to give the heart the the heart to the oxygen. There we go, the blood to the oxygen. Uh, but when it does come to those neurons in the brain, Everyone's neurons are slightly different, and I don't fully understand uh, how all of that stuff is, and I don't think science has really got a a full grasp on this yet, Uh, but there's lots of research to say that there are neurodivergent individuals. And what is neurodivergence? Essentially, it is a way, it's a different way of learning. So this was from uh, Mayam Bialik, I believe, is how you say that name. Uh, and, and he was talking to Wired on a, on a YouTube video, and he's a, a neuroscientist. And he was basically saying that neurodivergent individuals uh, have a different wiring in terms of learning. So they still, people with ADHD, people with autism, and other neurodivergent habits, because some people can have neurodivergent habits, but not be neurodivergent. And that is a a whole thing to dive dive deep onto, uh, but I don't have any formulated opinions around that yet. So the idea of neurodivergence and their different ways of learning is related to this energy. How much energy do they have for them to retain memories? Uh, People use the analogy of RAM and neurodivergent individuals typically, so ADHD individuals, have lower RAM. So instead of remembering five things that happened, they only remember three. So if a new thing comes in, that the 
let's let's try and use this in a better way. So you've got A, B, and C remembered. If D is said, A is forgotten, so now you have B, C, D as a neurodivergent individual. Someone that is neurotypical, maybe have A, B, C, D, E, and then you bring in F, and now you lose A. But now you've still got B, C, D, E, and F. So when someone asks a question to the neurotypical and the neurodivergent individual, well, if you've brought F in to the neurodivergent individual, they've only remembered three, so they've got D, E, F. They've got D, E, and F. A, B, and C are all gone. So if you ask them a question about A, B, and C, they've forgotten it. it it's gone. Their RAM has gone. The energy in their brain is gone. The, the neurons, they, they've just forgotten it. They, they just can't remember. Uh, and it makes it harder for them to learn because the more information that's dumped at them, that's thrown at them, it makes it harder for them to remember everything because they've only got three slots or four slots or whatever. Uh, whereas a neurotypical person has more slots for memory basically uh, and the the way that you can change that is well when you're giving information sometimes there's some information that neurodivergent individuals either don't need or can't grab quick enough to actually retain for them to use later on which is why they can look a little bit silly because they just forget things so they just forget things slightly quicker this is my understanding please tell me if i am wrong uh let me know either tweet at me or um send me send me a, a message over anchor and i i will i'm going to be exploring this in future but that's my current understanding of how neurodivergent learning works and obviously if you have a a lower capacity for the short-term memory and a higher capacity for other things that aren't necessarily as beneficial in the traditional learning environment, well, you need to change the learning environment. But changing a learning environment in, a, in an institution is nigh on impossible because tradition. Um, so the, the way we could potentially attack this is by having individualized medicine when it comes to learning, which is why I'm sharing things online because people learn in different ways. And what I think a teacher should be doing is inspiring people to go and learn and go and ask questions themselves rather than giving them all the information because almost all information is online. Most of my education in the last year has been free. The only things that haven't been free are things that I've grabbed illegally, which were still free on my end, uh, but I've grabbed them through SciHub, which is an illegal website that accesses, that accesses academic articles. That is basically it. Um, so the information is out there. You don't need to go to a, on a degree course to get the information. What the course helps you do is direct certain research studies in a specific direction, helps you communicate with other people so you can have those conversations and create those narratives and memories quicker and potentially easier. Um, but the actual information is, is out there for you to find. It's the conversation, the narratives that you have with other people in that field that is really where the, the benefits happen, the, the benefits come. Um, so a teacher is to inspire, challenge and excite people to learn, not tell them facts. And the, that, that was a quote from a Veritasium video. Uh, and I think this is a great point when it comes to teaching and sharing information. So for me, when I'm sharing information in videos, sharing information in podcasts, in blogs, etc., the... The point, as the individual that is exploring this thing, I'm not going to say teaching this thing because I'm not teaching, I'm exploring things and sharing what I know, that the point is to inspire other people to go explore it themselves. Or at least give them an idea that their current assumptions around a topic might not necessarily be entirely accurate. So they potentially challenge themselves or or it gets exciting for them to go, ooh, ooh, Maybe that's not entirely true. Uh, like sleep deprivation is supposedly really, really bad, but it's not. 
it's actually not sleep deprivation there's actually positives to it and it's used in therapy and that's an assumption that i had i was like sleep depth sleep depth no no just avoid it never never deal with sleep depth never have sleep depth but there's actually benefits to it so so the learning aspect of all of these different things normally are applied to youth. Not necessarily always, but youth, so pedagogy, not andragogy. Andragogy being learning of adults, pedagogy being learning of youth. And when it comes to learning in youth in sport, that's my uh, undergraduate degree, sport learning relative age effect is something that's massive. And essentially what it is, is if you are born at the beginning of the academic year, you are more likely to be successful. Now this relative age effect, I found out about it in sport, but also applies to academic so in the UK September is the beginning of the academic year so if you're born in, the, in September October November you are more likely to be successful in sport and in academics um, than people born in the latter part of the year so August and that is because of certain biases certain effects certain certain social effects psychological effects that happen but essentially you are favored because normally you are in sport you're bigger um, but if if it's down to the physical effects, then that's got another effect, and that's called the relative maturation effect, and that's where this point comes from. It was from a, a podcast, the Talent Equation podcast, the Genetic Lottery, relative maturation effects, basically saying if you're bigger and you're in that age group, you're more likely to be good because you're faster, quicker, you're you're stronger, you're, you, you just have a physical uh, benefit, uh, a physical, yeah, advantage over everyone else so you just look better so you get coached more uh, you're played more you have more playing time etc etc and that gives you an unfair advantage and relative age effect works very very similar in the academic world and when it comes to learning because when you are growing up when you're at aging essentially you your capacity to understand your year like that entire year on the earth isn't it or almost year like those nine ten months on earth more than that person at the other end of your year group you will have learned loads in that time because when you're young you learn loads really really quickly so you have that advantage so you're potentially in the top class when you look i have no idea i haven't got any stats to back this up but i would imagine most people in the top two sets in school probably are built born at the beginning of the year that, that is just a guess, but I would imagine the majority of them, there is going to be a bias, a swing to the beginning of the academic year. Now, depending on when the academic year is, I would imagine that is, but just just check with yourself. I am curious if you were born at the beginning of the academic year and you being in the top two sets, because I know for me, most people in my class were born either before me, so they were either September born or my month, October born. Most of our class had our birthdays at the beginning of the year. I think there was like two people in our class out of like 35 that weren't and that was classes across the board that's maths english science art like pe everything uh we were all sort of born at the beginning of the year and it, it's just funny how i i look back in my year group and go actually yeah as you go into the year group the people that had their birthdays towards the end of the year were all bottom set stuff and that's obviously a bias to it like in education uh, towards those individuals when you say oh top set uh, and i think they sh the groups the classes should be that way because those individuals are, are smarter but they are smarter not because they are just smarter than the other people yeah that's true but it's because they've had more time on the earth <laughs> like they've had more time to learn these things now yes there are going to be outliers and and people that don't fit that curve but when when you look at that and you you really analyze that 
I'm in top set because I'm smarter. No, you're in top set because you've been around longer and you've had more opportunities to learn than the people in bottom set. That's a different narrative. Gifted and talented, maybe some of you listening to this were in the gifted and talented programs at school. Is that you're gifted and talented or is that you're just older, you're bigger, you're stronger, you know more because you've learned, you've had the ability to learn more through time? Is that your advantage? Is that really gifted and talented or is that just uh, an advantage you have because of when you were born? Just, just something to think about. Uh, and and I'm, I'm going to do a little bit of a 90 degree turn here and talk about eyes affecting sleep and the wavelengths of uh, different things affecting the eyes. And I'm going to bring it back around to learning uh, in a second. But when it comes to sleep, we have uh, receptors in our eyes. They're ganglion cells in our eyes that receive light and they can help regulate our uh, SCN. So that is the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is essentially our internal body clock. And what the, what our eyes do is our eyes are part of our brain the retina in our eyes is part of our brain and it sends the signals back to the SCN to say okay the sun is out it's daytime the sun is not out it's nighttime and it helps regulate all the other sleep-wake cycles in our body uh, now the light that comes through the the, the glass the, the, the glass in uh, windows doesn't let through all the wavelengths uh, of, of blue light, which is essentially what it's looking for. I cannot remember off the top of my head what the blue light is. It is 470 volts. That is that is the thing I have from Dr. Mike's video. I don't know whether that's true, but around 470 volts. Now, when listening to Andrew Huberman, uh, he was saying that the light from screens and the light through windows is not the same intensity as the sun. So when you wake up in the morning, and you need to get the sunlight, going outside for five minutes is better than looking at your screen. Now, theoretically, you could get uh, lights and lamps and looking at screens and looking through windows, but it would take you longer for the brain to really acknowledge, oh, yeah, I'm awake. Uh, instead of being five minutes outside, you'd be, I'm just arbitrary number here, half an hour inside staring at a screen. And those those signals and those signals being sent to you are not going to be as strong in the same way as when you see the sun and and vice versa when you are going to sleep you're going to be more this is what i found out you're more susceptible to those blue lights so instead of needing a a high intensity light like the morning and going outside to the sunlight to wake yourself up you don't need that much light because you're highly sensitive to light when you go to sleep so those high intensity lights so if you were to be i mean if the sun was out and you saw the sun uh, as you were trying to go to sleep it's going to be harder so those people that try to go to sleep in the morning it's very difficult because of that reason you'd have to change your whole cycle etc etc which is why those night shifts are not ideal but when you go to sleep those blue lights from the screens because your body is so receptive, uh, susceptible to those lights, that's where it makes the impact. And that's why the minimal intensity of the blue light actually makes a big impact because the, the intensity, the velocity, the amplitude of those lights uh, actually changes due to your internal uh, cycle. Now, the reason I'm saying this is one, it's something I'm researching and I'm interested in, but two, all of that information is free online and I learned this not it had absolutely nothing to do with my degree so 
the ganglion cells, all of that stuff, I learned about a week ago. I learned about how the eyes impact the SEN. I learned what the SEN is. All of the information that I have just said, I learned for free through YouTube videos and like two podcast episodes, I think, but most of the, most of them are YouTube videos and podcast episodes. And then I justified what I found out through research papers. And most of the research papers were were free online, and I just read the abstract to confirm what it is that I found out that I that was that I was hearing. Now, this this learning here, this learning right there, that is a skill that I had to learn through adult education, through formal adult education. I wasn't taught doing my GCSEs. Like it's not a skill I learned. It's not a skill I learned in college either, and it's not a skill I learned in my undergraduate degree. To be honest, uh, towards the end of my undergraduate degree, so doing my dissertation for my third year, I started learning this sort of self-discovery of skills and asking questions and finding answers to those questions. But it wasn't until my master's degree, well, the summer between my un- my undergraduate and my postgraduate, where I had to learn about sports science, that that ability to learn the skills to discover and learn things those skills of what have helped me learn all this stuff about sleep about the the ganglion cells about the brain about neuroscience and i'm potentially doing a phd in neuroscience which has had absolutely nothing like what what is building muscle in a gym to help sport performance it's got nothing to do with the brain the only aspects that's got to do with the brain is motivation but that's psychology and there is no biochemistry involved in that (laughs) all of this stuff i've learned through myself through the skills that i developed and that is where education schools I think, need to start going. They need to start teaching the skills for people to learn themselves rather than just giving them information for an exam, for a curriculum, for an essay, for them to complete uh, for, for measurement of intelligence. And intelligence isn't always measured very well through quizzes and essays and tasks and tick boxes. Um, and uh, Veritasium actually did a video about that with p-values. And that was another interesting video. Maybe I'll talk about that next week. Uh, but yeah. Very interesting to think about. And another point I want to labor on with this, uh, labor on this point of learning, is I was talking about the eyes. Now, the eyes are one thing, but I didn't just learn, oh, the eyes, they help sleep, great. Well, they obviously also help you see things. But what I also found out, and what I also explored, was that sensory conflict. If there is a sensory conflict between the eyes, what you're seeing, um, and your balance, so your ears, that's where you start to feel motion sickness. That's that's where those those effects happen on the sea and things like that. So I already knew that ears helped with balance, but I didn't know how. And then I didn't realize that your eyes and your ears together obviously help with balance. But if there is a miss, if there is a mismatch, a sensory conflict with those two things, that causes motion sickness. Now I personally have never had motion sickness. Um, I just, I just don't feel it. And with my sport in trampoline, I'm constantly, I was, I was looking around, I was spinning, out, spinning around in somersaults and twists. And obviously, I'm, I'm deaf in my right ear. I don't think it affects my balance that much. It certainly affects my balance, but not that much. I don't know really. Um, but I think the trampoline, what, what trampolining has done is helped my brain uh, understand the different information, the di- different sensory information through my eyes and my ears. And I've, I've learned how to deal with that conflict, deal with that sensory conflict through trampoline and other things, which is potentially why I don't feel motion sickness. But this exploration of sleep has gone to eyes. And the exploration of eyes has gone to ears. And then ears has gone to balance. And then balance has then been relayed back into ears. And then that's relayed back into sleep. Because when you're sleeping, sleeping on a boat. How do you sleep on a boat if your eyes and ears are doing different things? And uh, it's, it's all linked. And this is where I'm exploring, obviously, 
for those of you that are listening to this point, you probably know I, I use Obsidian, and I can link all of these ideas together in my Obsidian Vault and go backwards and forwards between these ideas when I'm learning, and Research Rabbit is another tool that I've recently used, and I'm using Research Rabbit to then grab collections on these different curiosities, on these different questions, so when I'm moving forwards in learning, I don't have to go back to the lecture slides, because I have my own exploration. I've got the skills to move forwards. And the very last thing I did bring up, that sleep deprivation isn't necessarily all bad, and just to give you something to explore potentially moving forwards is a misconception, sleep deprivation is used as a therapy for depression. For depression. So those people that have anxiety and depression that really struggle, uh, sleep deprivation is actually used as a therapy for depression. Now, there is loads of research in that. I may be doing a video uh, on the science behind that, but just to, just to get you thinking, sleep deprivation, okay. If it's useful to, for depression, do we really need those seven hours of sleep? And uh, on, on that note, I will, I will leave you to, uh, to ponder, to explore, and if you do have any questions, have any thoughts, have any feedback, or do want to disagree with some things that I've said, please let me know on Twitter, at Danny Hatcher, or through the anchor, send me a message, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed it, found something new, or challenged your own thinking around something, maybe a misconception, or an assumption that you are making, but uh, until next week, have a good week, and uh, yeah, enjoy life, and I'll see you on the internet.